0: Welcome, everybody, to the uh, strap on your gun but don't ask for an abortion edition of Legal Tech Week. Uh, I am, as you can see, not in my usual office setting. Uh, I'm stuck midway between trying to get uh, back to my office. So I've pulled over into a relatively quiet place for my car. We'll see how well this works for today. Uh, But this is Bob Ambrogi. I am the uh, host of the show and uh, got a lot of good stuff to talk about today, I think, with. uh, several of our usual panelists here. So uh, let's go around with our usual introductions. Uh, Victor, you want to kick it off?
1: Sure, Uh, my name is Victor Lee. I am assistant managing editor for the ABA Journal covering business of law and technology. And yeah, it's been a really slow week. Nothing, absolutely nothing has happened at all (laughs) in the legal, in the legal sphere. Um, You know, I was gonna take the whole week off, so, you know.
0: Good, good good thing you didn't. Uh, Zach.
2: Yeah. Hey there. I'm Zach Warren, editor in chief of ALM's Legal Tech News. You'll also see me on Law.com, American Lawyer, other brands. I actually know a colleague or two who did take this week off. Um, probably a poor decision in retrospect.
3: <laughs> uh, and Steve. Um, Steve Embry here. I, I um, write the blog Tech Law Crossroads. I guess I could say I'm the editor in chief, uh, publisher author, janitor, dishwasher, you name it. And I also say that every opinion that appears on the blog are mine and not alone. (laughs) But that means that all the money you make from that blog, you get to keep for yourself. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) I can't even think of a catchy comeback for that one. Bob. (laughs) (laughs) You're you're in it for love, not
0: money. And uh, (laughs) Joe...
4: Yeah, uh, Joe Patrice from Above the Law and the Thinking Like a Lawyer podcast. I know you're all saying that there was not much news this week, but there absolutely was, uh, sincerely, because Above the Law announced its new A to Z big law rankings, a response to the Law 360 400, which is what, the Law 760, I don't know, Yeah, and the NLJ 500, so uh, everybody should check those out. I'll put those in the chat. Uh, but that's it. And Jim?
5: Yeah. I, hi, everyone. I'm Gene O'Grady. I write the uh, Dewey B strategic blog, and I also write a monthly column on Legal Tech Hub, and I cover uh, legal information, knowledge, workflow, and technology.
0: Uh, great. And uh, interestingly, I happen to be parked in the I don't know if anybody can see the building at all, but it's the JFK Library just outside of Boston, south of Boston. It's a beautiful setting looking out over. The trees weren't here. You can see Boston Harbor behind me. So I, I don't know, kind of a, maybe an ironic place to be on this uh, on this day. As a matter of fact, the last time I was here was to see uh, Justice Breyer speak a couple of years ago. So uh, a very strange day in history. So we can be, I guess, glad we cover legal tech and not the Supreme Court, uh, except, of course, above the law, which may occasionally have to cover the Supreme Court. Uh, uh, well, I, I'm going to kick it off today just because I, I think I have a very, very interesting story, which Zach tells me maybe I wasn't supposed to have. Maybe, maybe it was <laughs> maybe the embargo was pushed to Monday. I don't know. I didn't get the memo. Uh, I went ahead and reported it. Um, but uh, this is a, a story of a, a legal tech company that has pivoted to uh, effectively compete with the very customer, very law firms that used to be its customers. Uh, it's a company called Mighty. And uh, they're, since what I think it was 2015, 2014 or so, they've had a tech platform that is essentially an interface between PI law firms and uh, lien holders in PI cases. Uh, and, you know, those are the, the sort of the medical providers that, uh, uh, you know, have claims against uh, settlement proceeds in, in PI cases. Um, and uh, they've had this this uh, tech uh, company going for a while. And uh, according to the founder, uh, he, he started to become discouraged because he, he, he said he kind of went into the area of legal tech wanting to help reduce the the costs of legal tech to i mean of of law of legal services to consumers Uh, and he said that over the years what he's seen is he's saved these pi law firms millions and millions of dollars but that they haven't passed along any of that savings to their clients and in fact they're constantly looking for ways to inflate their fees or inflate the costs that they can charge their clients Uh, And he got very discouraged by that, and so he decided uh, that the only way to do anything about that was to take matters into his own hands and start, essentially, a PI firm that will uh, aim to deliver legal services at lower costs uh, for PI, in PI cases, uh, and that will commit to trying to push down costs more and more every year as they go forward. Uh, And what's interesting is they've kind of adopted this uh, atrium dual entity format that some of us may well remember that, uh, you know, the the Justin Kahn atrium thing that uh, was going to revolutionize legal services and and closed a few years later without revolutionizing anything. Uh, And so they've adopted a similar model here where Mighty, the company, is going to be the kind of tech and services and marketing support. And they've... Formed a separate law firm called Bitey Law, uh, which uh, will. Uh, now I'm in a, a dual uh, approach zone for Logan right now, so I don't know how this has happened. I've got planes coming every which way. Uh, but the, so they've got the separate law firm, which the company doesn't have any ownership in the law firm, the law firm doesn't have any ownership in the company, but they've have this sort of contractual relationship by which the law firm pledges that it won't charge more than a third for contingency fee cases that'll give back 10% uh, Good Maureen thanks. Uh, the, that it uh, will give back 10% of all the costs to the clients. In other words, instead of billing the full cost of a case to the client, uh, they'll just bill 90% uh, of the cost to the client uh, and that they're pledging to continue to do more and more every year to push this down lower and lower. So it's it's a pretty remarkable story. I can't remember anything equivalent of a of a, of a tech company pivoting to compete against its customers, uh, and uh, it's also again interesting in in for being yet another attempt at this this uh, dual entity model. Uh, you know, besides Atrium, there had been Clearspire before that uh, that had, that had tried it uh, and also failed. Uh, so it will be, they, they, I guess they've formally launched today and, uh, they've got the law firm up and going in four, three States rather, Connecticut, Texas, Georgia. And, uh, they plan that, you know, see how it goes and they plan to expand out into all 50 States eventually. Um, so, and, and yeah, and the funny thing is they're also going to continue to provide their technology, um, to, uh, law firms, to competing law firms. Uh, and, and, continue, and they say that, you know, plan to continue to build out more and more innovative technology to help further drive down costs. And they'll make that technology available to competing law firms. And I said, well, you think they're going to want to buy it? <laughs> and they said, well, you know, look at firms like uh, Litify uh, or, uh, uh, I mean, l- legal tech companies like Litify or, uh, uh, I'm blanking on the other one. There's a couple out there that came right out of connections law firm. Litify was basically started out of Morgan & Morgan. and Uh, You know, uh, so uh, who knows uh, how this will develop. But a fascinating story. Any, any, Zach, I know you knew a a little bit about this, but I don't know how much you you were able to pick up. Yeah,
2: Um, you hit on both the things that are most interesting to me, one being what you just talked about. The um, the fact that they're still trying to sell their technology to other law firms that they are now competing against, um, Christine Schiffner is going to have something for National Law Journal and us on this on Monday. And she talked to an outside marketing consultant who basically said, yeah, I'm surprised they didn't rebrand or they're trying to spin like off the law firm or make them different names or something like that because- yeah. I could see how a lot of PI firms are not going to take to this kindly, especially because in Mighty's marketing, they're pretty explicitly saying, like they said to you, we think that how law firms do it with their contingency models currently is kind (laughs) of greedy. And by lowering it to capping it at 30% or whatever it is, they're trying to do things in a different way that I'm not sure PI firms are going to want to do that different way. Um, And then, yeah, the other thing that interests me that you touched on is the atrium model of it all. Um, That was my first question to Christine, actually, is how the heck is this not unauthorized practice of law? But by separating them in that way, um, it'll be interesting to see whether somebody can finally get this to stick. Maybe go in plaintiff's side and PI specific is the way to do it.
0: Yeah, yeah. I know nobody else probably had a chance to see this story. I don't know if anybody has any thoughts on it, but I mean, Steve, you were on the kind of the other side of that point for a, lot, a long time uh, as a defense lawyer. Uh, any thoughts on that?
3: Well, you know, not really. <laughs> oh, okay. it, it, it is, it is kind of interesting that, that uh, somebody from the plaintiff's side of things is, is doing this, you know, they're, Business model is so completely different from the defense side. I mean, it's it's yeah. um, that, it, one would think that plaintiff's law firms, because of the way they do things on a contingency fee basis, would want to reduce costs as much as possible, right? Because every cost that's reduced is, and in a time sense, is more money made sort of just the opposite of a defense law firm where you, you, know, you make more money by billing more hours and spending more time, make more money by spending less time. But I guess what, what really has been transpiring is, you know, they, instead of being satisfied with a 30% return, they want a 40% or 50% return. And, they, you know, they're just basically using all the efficiencies to, to make more money. And, you know, there's, a lot of argument already that plaintiff's law firms really make too much money, particularly in the class action context where you've got, yeah. you know, yeah. I get my little coupon for a $1.98 and then I see the plaintiff's law firms are paid $10 million. <laughs> what? <laughs> that doesn't make much sense to me. Uh, right. So, so yeah, I mean, it'd be interesting to see. I, I, I that, that market is uh <clears throat> you either play extremely local or you play really big nationally like Morgan & Morgan and those kind of firms. They play really big nationally. They have offices all over. Yeah. Um, and that's, I mean, they're an advertising machine and they're quite effective at what they do. And that's a hard compete um, on the local yeah, market. Yeah, like six or 700 lawyers at Morgan & Morgan, It's a huge market. Yeah, size yeah. matters, as they're fond of saying. Yeah. You know, on the local side, you know, you, you have to sort of, be connected in the community a little bit more. So I, I don't know if they'll be successful at it or not. I did jumping in with that kind of competition, but it's they, an interesting, interesting concept. <laughs> yeah. But, but
1: yeah. they have a ready-made, they have a ready-made advertising campaign, right? It's like, hey, we worked with all these PI firms for a long time. We know how sleazy they are. So here we're going to do, do things differently. And we're going to do things better for you. You know, it's, it's who, who, who can't really identify with that at the end of the day? Because by the end of the day, most people think that PI firms are, are like that and, and it confirms everything that they think about pi lawyers and 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 everything that's wrong with that industry and so uh, yeah it, it's interesting it'll, it'll it'll definitely you know I, I mean yeah i i'm interested to see where this goes um you know it's it's it'll be interesting to see like especially with like like, like with a dual structure and everything and also with the the technology that that, that they're going to try to sell back to firms i mean you figure if it's good enough technology then firms will use it even if they're competing against them so and maybe they'll think maybe they'll think they'll give them some kind of some kind of boost to compete against them so it'll it'll be interesting to see where this goes i'm i'm, I'm interested to see to see that
2: Yeah, like Bob said, too, though, the fact that it's a New York company, but the three states they're launching in Connecticut, Georgia and Texas. Um, I don't know. I haven't read your story fully, Bob, and I, I don't think Christina or Christine got exactly why those three states. But I'm wondering if there's something inherent in the PI market there that they say we're seeing that lawyers are maybe making too much money or maybe this is where the customers that we're talking with are really clamoring for a change. Um, but the fact that they hyper-targeted that way is also interesting.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I actually did ask that question and I, I'm not sure I correctly remember it. I, but my my memory is that his answer, I don't think I put it in my story, but my memory is his answer was really more, just had more to do with some uh, business and lawyer connections they had in those states more than, more than any other sort of strategic uh, uh, thing. But... Uh, uh, I mean, Connecticut seems like. I mean, Georgia and Texas are both big kind of PI lawyer states, and, and uh, a lot of litigation. You know, a lot of PI friendly uh, lawyer litigation happens there in Connecticut. I I, I think the guy yeah. lives in Connecticut. for one thing, the slip CEO, and fall uh, out of your
4: ma- slip and fall out of your mansion or something. I don't know.
0: <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway, or or, or while your uh, chauffeur is driving you into New York. Um, uh, I know,
5: that's not all of uh, Bob, <laughs> um, you know, the uh, one thing I do want to, I do think that there's a small predecessor parallel in to, in terms of Thomson Reuters having bought Pangea three years ago, they got rid of it, but I thought that was a situation in which they were selling to law firms and then simultaneously trying to undermine market share for law, for law firms, mm. but apparently it didn't work out. They got out of the business.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Uh, all right. Um, I uh, am crippled by the fact that I don't have the uh, spreadsheet in front of me. Uh, so I have no idea what you guys all think. What's what's good? Gene? what do you have this week?
5: Well, this morning I posted this. Actually, this started months ago uh, when uh, Thomson Reuters had their uh, whiplash event of uh, canceling 24-hour support and then reinstating it in two days. But it made Thanks me... Thanks to you. Yes, it it made me think about the state of of customer support because i and i've had a pretty long career so my my vision is a little (laughs) bit distorted but i remember when vendors used to pass themselves off as partners And seemed to be genuinely interested like Thompson or when it was Westlaw referred to its slogan was forever aligned with the practice of law or something like that, like they genuinely saw themselves as invested in lawyers needs and helping lawyers practice and to me that pivot into saying we don't you know there's been a pandemic nobody works in an office there's no such thing as 24 hours as as a nine-to-five job and yet we're going to shut down our customer support at night and on weekends and i big i it made me want to ask what other people thought was going on so one of the the important questions i asked was compared to 10 years ago how would you say customer support is and over 60 well first of all I got an overwhelming response I had 170 responses which on my blog and the whole time I've done surveys over the years and this is definitely the highest response rate I've ever gotten and um, the bad news is people took lots of time to provide me with uh, detailed responses. So I have not I have been working through the coding and, and trying to data normalize all the responses, but today I, I published something that was fairly, a clearly, a, fa- a fairly clear um, a conclusion, which is that 60% of the people who responded said things were substantially or dramatically worse than 10 years ago in terms of customer support. And there were very consistent in the comments the very consistent themes that arose were people have gotten, there's not enough support staff. The people who are supporting products don't understand the products. They don't understand the market. They don't know who the competition is. They can't explain why their product is better than the competition. Uh, they, they often give you the wrong information, they're hard to reach. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's just, it's, it, it was a pretty, pretty bleak uh, consensus. That things are not good now. You know, at the time, a number of my colleagues said, "Well, you know, they're probably going to start to offer apps and bots, and it's going to get better." But that we're not there yet. I mean, that that may really be true down the line, but we're not there today. So uh, I'll be reporting more as I as as I work my way through the data the data analysis. I'll be posting more charts over the next month.
0: That's pretty interesting. I mean, was there any, were there any silver linings in any of that? I mean, was there anything good that people were
5: saying? Well, what was interesting was the question about smaller companies having excellent service. There were some really interesting findings in that. Some of the small companies came out really well and one in particular, one in almost every category. And I was just I'm not surprised, but I was surprised how consistent it was. I think I listed like seven or eight categories of support, you know, again, like documentation, responsiveness of staff, you know, so I'm, I am working through my pivot table.
0: Are, <laughs> are you naming data. names here in terms of the companies? Or? I, I'm
5: not gonna name them today, but in, uh, when, the, when I do the one on the small companies, yes, I absolutely will talk about which small companies came out the best.
0: All right, we'll just have to wait in suspense.
3: Yeah, you know, I uh, I was thinking as you were talking, Gene, it, it, I'm not sure it's limited to legal. I mean, sort of the decline in service across the board since the pandemic hit is just, uh, I, you know, I don't have any survey data other than anecdotal data, but it, it seems bad, but you know, I guess a lot of it is there's not enough people to, to do the work, uh, so that's a problem too but at least reportedly.
5: But, you know, what surprises me is for companies like, you know, Thompson, Reuters and Lexus, who have been in the market for literally decades, there was a time when they had people in their headquarters who could do a custom report and help an organization find out what was going on with their, with their utilization, you know, compare offices, compare, compare practice groups, the, compare it to the overall market. They, they could do now. It seems like no, they either don't support it or they don't care. Like when I ask my reps, I want a business review. They stare at me like, what's a business review. And why would I want to do one for you? You know, can you tell me how to write it? And it's like, why aren't people doing customer support? Why doesn't the organization have a template and say, when customers want to know about the performance of their contract, when they wanna know something about the return on investment, you ought to be prepared to to give them some kind of a report. everyone seems totally surprised at least in the the larger organizations it's very difficult for them and i think part of it i hate to sometimes i hate to blame the local reps on the ground i really blame the the headquarters ought to be giving people the tools, the software, there ought to be templates for all of this stuff. And I feel like when I ask for things, everybody has to invent it from scratch. And I'm like, you're a bazillion dollar company. You've been in the industry for 30 years. Why are you surprised?
2: Well, I wonder if that's part of it is just particularly for those largest companies like your TRs, like your Lexus, whether they've just gotten too big and too much red tape and too much happening that nobody it can really hone in on a specific problem because there's 30 different people who had input to that problem. And well, it's this person I need to talk to about this and X, Y, Z. Um, it, it seems to me completely outside perspective, not having dealing having dealt with them, but just streamlining the process would go a very long way, just empowering people to give answers quicker.
5: Well, you know, the, and the other thing, by contrast, I mean, like when you think back to the early days of Lexus and Westlaw, almost out of the gate, they invented structures and capture mechanisms for passing on the costs to clients, they actually haven't improved those things in 30 years, but they're still there. But why did they do that? Because it helped them justify their costs by helping law firms pass the cost on. Those were mechanisms for driving their own revenue. Once it gets turned around and clients are pushing back, they don't wanna pay for it. Our need to justify why we're spending money because we don't have the kind of s- subsidy that used to be taken for granted 20 years ago. So w- why haven't they built an ROI mechanism? So I understand if you're gonna if you're gonna ratchet up the you're gonna add on these new things and you're gonna raise the cost by 25 or 30 percent, show me show me the ROI.
0: Is there any chance that, that part of the reason? Uh, for this is just the overall explosion in legal tech and it just gets harder and harder to find these people to work in these support jobs. I I talked to a lawyer this week who told me he's been getting swarmed by headhunters uh, for legal tech companies, for sales positions, for customer support positions, uh, for marketing positions even. Uh, And he's he's never worked in tech, but he's he's a lawyer. and They want his experience you know, they're looking for people with his kind of experience to come work in these kinds of jobs. Uh, And I wonder if they're just having a problem filling some of these positions.
5: Yes, but then all the more reason to create an infrastructure, a universal infrastructure that the, you know, if if you went from having 50 people to 10 people create the infrastructure so those 10 people can do more, you can, you know, report on things more easily. I mean,
0: Yeah, yeah. That would require tech.
5: <laughs> so that's my rant for this week.
0: Yeah. All right. Oh, finally, we've got to find out what Josh Lennon's job actually is. That's good. I never knew what he did. <laughs> He's got the best job in big tech.
5: He's a lawyer in residence. Uh, where? Cleo. Oh. Hi, yeah,
0: yeah.
5: Josh. Never met you. Good to meet you.
0: You're probably the only two people on this call who haven't—I mean, have not <laughs> met each other or something. You haven't met Josh, or Josh hasn't met you. Long
3: time, long time listener, first time caller. Right, <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. Oh, and Pam Smith
0: is from Cleo. So yeah. All right. Anyway, let's move on. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to go through the little squares on my phone here. And Victor, that would make you next. What do, what do you got this week?
1: Um, yeah. So, um, you know, I was, I was, I, I've been following the, um, you know, the uh, action on the in, in Congress concerning the, uh, uh, proposed online privacy bill. And, uh, it actually cleared, a cleared a subcommittee, uh, it cleared a subcommittee uh, this week and it, it'll, um, presumably move on to the full committee next and it seems like that despite there's bipartisan support for it in the House. But obviously whether whether the Senate takes it up even before the midterms, um, you know, is, is anybody's question. But, you know, there is hope because, you know, the Senate actually did pass something this week. So uh, <laughs> it, it is possible for for the Senate to do something when they want to. Uh, and, you know, online privacy is one of those issues that seems like they have pretty, pretty powerful advocates on both sides of the aisle. Um, you know, Republicans and Democrats, you know, are something that, 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 that they might have some common ground on. So it's interesting. And like the, the law the, the, the law that, that was passed, it's it was, um, you know, it's some people say it doesn't go far enough, but, um, you know, as well, it's, it's one of those things where it would require um, um, companies like uh, Google and Facebook and, 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 company, and companies like that to only collect personal data that is necessary to provide services, whatever that means. Um, and that's sensitive information, like personal information, social security numbers and stuff like that. Would would get more protection than what they get now. I mean, and obviously, you know, whether that whether that goes far enough is going to be an interesting question that will probably get, you know, taken up later on. But, you know, obviously they're against they're against the clock. You know, probably nothing's going to get done um, if they don't do it before before November, and then after that, it'll probably just have to get punted back to, um, you know, whatever the next Congress looks like. But, I mean, it'll be interesting to see to see where it goes, and you know, it can always be used as like a template for further for future um, future uh, um, bills down the line, and you know. So, so we'll see where, where, what happens with that.
0: Yeah, we actually talked about that a little bit last week too. Uh, was it last week? I think Zach, you talked about it last week. Um, and uh, I, th- I think it's really interesting. Uh, and I, one of the questions, if I recall right, that we talked about was this, this question of, of does, does the federal law in any way preempt uh, state laws that are out there? Because uh, there are an increasingly growing number of, uh, of state laws on this issue. Uh, and, and they don't all necessarily uh, uh, align with each other. So there, there can be differences uh, in state requirements along these lines, which could be a nightmare for businesses that, that do business
3: across all 50 states. Um, Sorry, nightmare, was- for, nightmare for businesses... boon for lawyers
5: (laughs) and i think a nightmare for customers because on the discussion last week we got we got down one of the issues that had been raised i think by zach was the prospect of signing out to amazon would be like signing up for a mortgage like 42 pages of disclaimers where you had to check off what kind of privacy information you were allowing them to collect and and my my alternative was why don't I just have a profile someplace? And if, if, if a vendor wants to do business with me, they go and check my privacy profile. And that which led to this down this rabbit hole of what was it? Blockchain? Somebody wanted to do a blockchain project.
3: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, to Victor's
2: point, though, I, especially if this is getting out of committee and it is starting to look more and more like this might not just be another fancy, this thing might actually have a chance of passing. I wonder if say you're a corporate legal department when you're starting to prepare for this thing and really digging into the details, because I would imagine that, um, it's one of those things that it's going to take a long time to try and implement, and it seems like the fact that they did create this out of whole cloth that's not necessarily modeled off of Virginia or Colorado or California or one of these other bills means that you're going to need to go through it with a fine-tooth comb to make sure you're complying with everything, which is going to take a while. Um, So Mm -hmm. I think it'll be interesting to see what organizations say, okay, let's try and get the jump on this now. Um, Just be because it will make our lives easier a little bit down the road if this thing does pass.
1: And I guess you would you would think that like if they, you know, you know, if they had done done this for GDPR and for the California law and stuff like that, then you know they should have like at least the infrastructure in place to be able to quickly, you know, to be able to quickly um, you know implement something or to be able to uh, you know, yeah, like kind of advise their clients as to like, you know, you know, the potential of of, of this bill and whatnot. Um I mean, at least you know, one would hope, but then again, they might just be banking on the fact that it's part that it might not get out of the Senate and in which case then it's just it's just it's just academic.
0: All right, um, anything else on that? Then uh,
3: next up in my screen is Steve. <laughs> I wasn't expecting to be next, sorry. <laughs> I have nothing to say on anything. No, I'm only kidding. Well, I had had uh, actually picked up uh, an article that uh, Catherine Rubino for Above the Law wrote, <clears throat> keeping keeping with the uh, strategy that, you know, I have nothing really important to say. So I played piggyback on somebody else's, but it was a, a real interesting development of an AMLA 100, barely AMLA 100 law firm has decided that it's Going to cut the salaries of associates who, uh, whose utilization rate, which I assume is their billable hours, <clears throat> is eighty percent of their goal, uh, and it just struck me as uh, sort of mean spirited and uh, a lack of a lack of the firm recognizing its its responsibility, you know, two things have to be in play to do something like that. Either the firm does not have enough work to keep all the associates busy at 100% or more, um, or they've got a whole lot of lazy associates, which, you know, people that go to work for AMLA 100 firms and get jobs there typically are not terribly lazy. I mean, they have uh, manage to excel in college and excel in law school and excel as law clerks and summer associates and it's hard to believe that they would be uh, lazy enough not to not to bill their quota in fact probably the opposite is generally true if there's enough work to do you know these these people by and large are highly competitive and highly motivated for the most part and uh, are gonna, gonna go out there and bill as much as they can as fast as they can to to advance in the law firm. And so I, you know, I just kind of, I really sort of, sort of felt like that, or sort of surmised that perhaps there's not enough work to keep all these associates busy, or the work is not being uh, divvied up in a way that is, that is fair and and appropriate, which is also a problem. I, I don't know, you know, all the details. And apparently the the law firm in question wasn't supplying many of the details to Catherine, which is no big surprise, but it just uh, you know, it just struck me as not only bad on the associates, but sort of unfair to clients because if it, if, it's, if it's the fact that the law firm doesn't have enough work to do and they're now going to cut your salary if you don't make 80 percent of your quota then people are going to start looking for things to do whether those things to do are really necessary involve legal judgment or what and end of the day the person that gets hurt the most is not only the associates but the clients. so i just had a, a real sort of visceral reaction to, to the whole thing. And it came, upon, came kind of on the tail of, a, of an article I had written uh, about the uh, Krill Strategies and University of Minnesota study came out earlier this month, which, you know, to sort of state the obvious that, that lawyers that are, that are evaluated on their professional skill and, and those sorts of things are generally happier than those that are evaluated purely on their productivity and their hours happier lawyers are healthy and healthier lawyers in the long run are going to be more productive uh, and, and be less costly, which is, you know, duh. <laughs> we really need a peer review study to, to know that, but obviously that's true. And and this would sort of line the face of that is It's like, you no, know, well, we don't really care about anything, but you better get your hours built up or we're going to cut your salary. Um so anyway, that that was struck me as I was glad to, I was glad she wrote the story, but I was saddened by the fact that the law firm was taking that step.
4: So one interesting counter to that, because I talked to Catherine about this while we were all working on it, uh, it I I think the way they postured it is we we've had a series of raises over the course of this year, you know, leading up to now. Uh, the Fed deciding we're going to have a big recession. Uh, So we've had all these raises. Step has been a little bit behind on that. I think what they were trying to do uh, clumsily uh, was have cake and eat it, too, by saying, we're matching the Cravath scale, but then saying, oh, um, but not for a lot of you. So that way they can advertise to people if they're looking for laterals or trying to retain people. Hey, we pay Cravath but not really that that's my thought on what they were doing and that i think you're still dead on right about your analysis that it means they're not making enough money but i think it's that they were not making enough money to justify the salary bump but rather Mm -hmm. than just stay the course they couldn't do that and still compete out there with the talent war that's happening so they were like how about we do this we say we've increased and just uh hope nobody notices. I, that was my read on it when I was hearing it cuz they when Catherine called them to get comment they really did keep fixating on but we're matching cravath. I want everybody to get that <laughs> headline. I was like I mean but no, right? Yeah. So,
3: but I think the word is disingenuous is that kind of
4: <laughs> it, it seemed that? a little clever to me and maybe that's the right way i should say it i found it
3: that's a nicer way it's a nicer (laughs) way of saying it yeah
4: yeah i think they were trying to play a game yeah
3: well i mean you know and and law firms do this a lot i mean they you know you might have you might have an associate who's who's working at 70 percent who really is kind of lazy and dogging it. So so rather than walking into the associate's office and saying, okay, you know, you've got six months to get your hours right. And, and if you, you're not going to get your hours up, then you either have to go to another track compensation wise, or, or you need to go someplace else. But rather than do that, it's ah, oh, everybody. This is going to want everybody. So this way, we don't have to go have that, that unpleasant conversation. <laughs>
1: Well, Some people might like it. I mean, you know, if it mean, if it means they get to the work a little bit less, but they still make their they still make their what two hundred fifteen thousand dollars a year instead of two fifty. It's like, well, okay. I mean, <laughs> you're not going to starve on that. So, I mean, yep. and, and if that means you get like you get you get a little bit more of your weekend back, then you know why not?
3: Yeah, but and that's a fair point, Victor. I mean, it it, it but <clears throat> if it's true that you have people that really want to make partner and they can't make their hours because there's not enough work or it's not being divided up appropriately, you know, then that's bad because here, now you have people that that don't want to go on that track and really want to be on the partner track. They just can't, there's just not enough work or they're not getting enough work to, to get it done. And, and that happens a lot in law firms. They they're very poor about, you know, making sure that the work is divided equally because, you know, a a partner with a big book, Book of business wants associates A, B, and C working on his or her files, and they don't want anymore anybody else working on them. And so, you know, you might have associates D, E, and F who can't get any work.
0: Yeah, as we've talked about on the show before, there is some data to show that those uh, people of color and, and women are often those who don't get as much of the work as uh, the traditional, you know, white male uh, track people uh, within a firm so uh that's another consequence there all right uh i think joe you would be up next
4: uh yeah so uh let's see here um so my story and there are two takeaways is more than a story uh which is that um, um yeah sorry um I'm dealing with uh, a, a typing thing right there, so it sounded like terrible radio sorry everybody so uh, yeah so on it released the second half of their ELR their uh, you know. Enterprise legal reputation, I think it is anyway the ELR report and the this is an interesting study they've conducted uh, 4500 respondents enterprise level enterprise and legal departments uh, getting at the heart of some things uh, their first. Uh, bit was very interesting the second bit had a couple other things that i thought were interesting one of which we've talked about on this show before uh in the context of like coca-cola and and microsoft obviously uh the diversity in hiring of vendor programs that some of these companies and in particular legal departments have uh those are applauded and mentioned in this report interestingly while companies seem to be doing a very decent job of pushing vendor diversity. Uh, They're doing this far outpacing their own internal hiring diversity. Uh, One of the things it hits on is that there might be a bit of a NIMBY problem with the way in which these companies actually approach diversity, equality, and inclusion projects. Uh, So that's something to look out for because, I I mean, the way I balanced it is, on the one hand, you know, it, firms are where people learn, I, for better or worse, that's how we've structured our industry. So yeah, there's gonna be more avenues to bring in diversity by through hiring outside counsel than there necessarily are people who are prepared to move in-house. That said, uh, it's not really diversity if, the, if a whole segment of jobs are not really accessible. Uh, and the second half, and I'll just introduce it, and then we can talk about whatever, the second half of it was the first installment of the ELR focused on the fact that law uh, legal departments are like, we're beloved and trusted partners, and all of the enterprise stuff were saying, yeah, we're going to bypass legal on any deal, on, on the first deal we get a chance to, uh, which is not good. Uh, so this report kind of got into a little bit of this. Uh, yes, it seems as though legal departments are relatively clueless about how they're perceived. But it also seems a little more nuanced as the uh, getting this set of data. It seems as though everybody agrees and works with legal on certain categories of work, and then there's just other categories they think legal isn't necessary for, and that's what they bypass. So far from just not trusting legal, it's that they've decided, there are certain enterprise folks have decided there are certain things that are low enough risk, I don't wanna deal with how slow legal is. Uh, and the recommendation is, if legal were faster and more efficient, they would have a better, better pitch to say, "Yeah, this seemingly innocuous vendor deal still has to be something we look at."
1: Yeah.
0: Um, yeah, that's really that's interesting. All- I mean, I, I've heard that that very thing from from. Uh, uh, you know lawyers I've talked to in legal departments who who's basically say that you know they, the, the people in their uh, in their sales uh, side of things are, are just kind of afraid to bring deals to them uh, for fear that it's gonna just muck everything up and slow everything down and so they do everything they can to just kind of avoid having to get legal involved uh, and I mean that's what you know a lot of these products that are out there now are kind of really focused on that whole idea let's let's you know, let the, the salespeople uh, you know interface right out of Salesforce with whatever product and, and throw up some of these contracts uh, uh, in, in a more automated uh, way and, and, and facilitate the review uh, just to get the whole process through more quickly.
2: Yeah, I think it was interesting too right um, It was when I was talking with Brad Rogers on it. I think for the first one, um, the first report, we he made a similar point that legal operations is supposed to be the ones facilitating that sometimes and saying that, hey, uh, we have this technology, lawyers can work efficiently, they can do what you want to do, they can be a sales driver for the organization because we have all of this here. But a lot of other business units don't necessarily realize either that legal ops is there or what capabilities the legal departments actually have. So there's just a little bit of a breakdown in communication, if nothing else, um, which makes all of this difficult for other organizations to really trust what the legal department can do.
0: I guess the other aspect of that is it also it, it comes back to haunt after the deal is closed. I mean, if, if you don't get legal involved when they should be involved, uh, the salespeople might be happy because they, they, they met their quota, you know, by the end of the month or whatever. But uh, when there are then problems in the in the subsequent months with that deal, then uh, it's, it's left for somebody else to have to deal with the, the consequences of that. Uh, all right. Well, Jack. Um, you get. Last ups today.
2: Yeah, last but not least. Um, So my story kind of goes back to the first thing we were talking about, about unauthorized practice of law and where technology companies are fitting in the modern legal landscape. Um, Utah, Arizona have gotten a lot of press for their Utah's regulatory sandbox, Arizona adjusting their rules um, around unauthorized practice of law. Uh, California, has had committees for a regulatory sandbox but this week basically said even if we have one it can't do anything um there was an amendment to their fee licensing bill a yearly thing that happens which i i want to get the exact language here that we wrote about the bill now says any new bar sponsor program must quote, prioritize protecting individuals, especially those in need of legal assistance from unscrupulous actors, including those actors seeking to do business in the legal field above all else. Uh, in layman's terms, basically saying that law firms and lawyers are the ones who were doing law. Any other outside businesses, no thank you. You are barred from trying anything here. Um, So hypothetically, in February, they pared down their regulatory sandbox committee, but they still have it going. Um, They also have another committee that's working on uh, paraprofessionals basically doing some sort of limited practice of law. But essentially, what this bill that they passed on Tuesday says is, well, even if there is something that comes out of that, we're not going to let them either have the funding or practically do anything out of it. Um, So to me, especially because we talked a lot about what state could be next, and who's going to open up their regulatory laws, a lot of eyes went toward California, I think probably because of the nature of Silicon Valley, because a lot of tech and software is focused there, but there remains a whole lot of pushback from the California bar, it seems. And if you are looking for another state to go there, I don't think California is going to be the one that you're going to be looking at. Yeah,
0: I think it's part of part of what's interesting about that is, I mean, it, you know, it, when this uh, uh uh momentum towards some unauthorized practice of law rules i mean towards uh, loosening those rules first started you know all eyes were on california and and i think everybody kind of thought california was going to be the first state that was going to uh be the one that uh, uh you know flipped the dominoes and and uh started this going all across the country uh and nobody quite saw utah coming out of left field to lead the way on this and then arizona uh, and, uh, and California has turned out to just be a major sticking point. Uh, and I, I think, you know, it looks more, it's looking more and more like there's definitely going to be other states that are going to achieve, uh, reforms in this area well before California ever does. But it, 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 it's, it's just, it shows you that, that power of the, uh, this, the sort of, uh, entrenched, uh, interests of, of the organized bar and, and protecting their turf. And that's, been a major obstacle to innovation in law for a long time and <laughs> it continues to be and it, it's uh, it's unfortunate uh and it, it's just uh you know again i, I we've said this before but in, in utah and arizona it's it's been fascinating that the the drive for change has come from the top from the supreme courts in those states uh you know to somewhat to the uh the chagrin of of the organized bar in some cases Um, and uh, you know who knows maybe
3: maybe california supreme court will step up at some point too i'd i'd actually written a tongue-in-cheek article that i posted yesterday about the, the the google engineer who or former engineer i guess who who proclaimed his ai program was had human consciousness and feelings uh, mainly because he did an interview of it and, and the, the program recognized concepts of justice and injustice and sacrifice for the greater good. And so, you know, I posed the question whether how many lawyers have a human conscience And and if if the test is whether they perceive justice and injustice and are willing to sacrifice for the self-sacrifice for the greater good then I think a goodly percentage of them are out (laughs) I I also wondered whether the AI program could pass the bar exam and get past the character and fitness committee and be hired by a big law firm like the one that would cut the Poor associate salaries, but back to eight <laughs> percent. That's fair.
2: No, it, kind of to that point, though. I thought it was interesting that a lot of the bar's arguments in this case were explicitly: we're looking out for consumer protection. We're doing this for the good of people who are doing getting legal services in California, protecting them from these unscrupulous actors. When it's always are- been the. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And the argument from Utah, it, I mean, Justice Simonis and others has been pretty much kind of the exact same thing of we're looking out for consumers and because we're giving them more options. And it's somebody you can't really be looking out for consumers both ways. There's got to be some push, give and take. And yeah, I'm I'm a little bit skeptical that the only way to look out for consumers is by completely barring everybody else. But what do I know? Yeah, well, the, I, I, the numbers I mean, belie that
0: argument. That's the problem. They, I mean, you can't look. You can't look at how many people are not getting legal representation and legal help in this country and say the existing rules are helping consumers. It's just it's just a fact that they're not. So.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's all, Sorry, it's always but, the doomsday scenario that, that that they cite, right? It's like the the con man who weasels his way in to like you know so, to like so like somehow like you know passing himself or herself off as a lawyer and then taking all these people these poor innocent people for a ride and whatnot but you know i mean look that that that's does it happen sure but i mean you know the alternative is that okay whether well, these people are stuck with the status quo and they have no you know they can't afford they can't afford most lawyers and most lawyers won't even do their work because it doesn't pay enough and i, I mean it's interesting because i think i remember when i when uh you know when, when california first started looking at this i remember i was surprised i was like oh that's Uh, yeah, I I always thought it would be like I I like 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 when 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 Utah and Arizona were doing it, I remember thinking, okay, well maybe it has to be a small state like that. Not a small state, but like a smaller state like that, because you know, maybe maybe if you get everybody on board and you get all the decision makers on board and whatnot, and you kinda um, you know, maybe maybe the bar isn't quite as diverse as, as a place like California where you have a diversity of views and people who, you know, are adamant about protecting their turf and whatnot. And you know, it's kind of like the whole like kind of small firm versus big firm thing, where sometimes change happens more easily in a small firm as opposed to a big firm. And California is, you know, obviously the big the big one in this case. And just the way that like, you know, just following the story, the way that like, you know, they kept cutting back on like the mandate of the, of, of these committees and whatnot, and kind of, you know, kind of first first kicking out people who weren't from California and then limiting, you know, like the scope of like what they what they were going to cover and whatnot. I, I wasn't surprised to see that it went this way. Um, you know, it'll be... It, California might have been might have been a, a might have been a bridge too far for them. You know, it might have been too big. You know, with too many too many lawyers with different opinions, and you know, maybe too competitive for some lawyers who are worried about losing. You know, losing losing what business they have. So, um, you know, maybe you know maybe maybe this is always going to happen. But yeah, it, but then it's kind of like, well, then what do you do for those people? You know, who 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 need who need services in? I mean, the pe- the lawyers in California now aren't helping them. So how is this going to help them? You know, even more. Yeah,
0: I had I had a call this week with a, a AI engineer uh, who is developing a product uh, that would very sophisticated uh, AI product for kind of answering consumer legal questions. Uh, not on mark, not to market yet. I, I I thought we were meeting because he wanted to demo the product for me or something. Turns out he wanted <laughs> legal advice on uh, on the question of whether his his pro- whether his uh, AI algorithm could be shut down by state authorities for unauthorized practice of law. Uh, and I said, I don't know, let me check with my bot. I have no idea. But uh, my bot didn't know the answer to that one either. But uh, I mean, it's sort of an, <laughs> it gets to be an interesting question, right? As, as more and more AI is used to uh, uh, deal with legal issues, uh, is there a point at which AI can be considered to be practicing
3: law? I don't know. There's an opinion from, some, from one state, I can't remember where, basically the reasoning is, only since only humans can practice law, if, they, if a program does it or an algorithm does it, by definition, it can't be the practice of law, which is kind of interesting reasoning. <laughs> yeah, but, but
0: what about the people who develop the algorithm or own the algorithm?
5: But you know, Bob, both Lexus and Westlaw have those, you know, Q and A, you know, where you can ask a question and it comes pretty close to giving you a legal answer. And I haven't heard of anybody attacking those systems as unauthorized. I mean, I think I I think if we're going to happen, that might be a they they might be a logical target.
0: (laughs) Yeah, let's shut down Thomson Reuters over unauthorized practice of law
5: as uh, we were saying earlier.
3: But they don't which have, they don't have a, any customer n- service anyway so
4: <laughs> which i just like to remind everybody is not a statement endorsed by above the law or any right. subsidiaries.
0: <laughs> no i, I mean gene is going to shut them down long before that
3: happens
5: uh, Now, i think um, it's, i think I, I as other people have mentioned green before i actually think at one point they're just going to Kill the golden goose, and some little competitor is going to come out, and I don't know, it's going to change the landscape.
3: All right,
0: that may happen next week, and if it does, we will talk about it here. Um, but I think that does anything else. anybody want to ring and bring up before we
3: wrap up
5: today?
1: See, Bob, I think you should host all episodes from your car. I think I think that's a good look. <laughs>
5: Yeah, uh, dad, well, it's, a, it's have, a nice touch. comedians yeah. in cars.
0: Yeah, comedians in cars. We can we can just be uh, legal legal tech people in
5: cars. Yeah, um, we can we can but, take turns.
2: Yeah, yeah my Hyundai but, not as cool as yours. I have to say.
1: Yeah, my, my Subaru uh, doesn't quite you know have that same look. I don't. I, I gotta say.
0: Yeah, this is an old car. This is like my my uh, this is like my pandemic indulgence. I, I wanted a convertible, and I hadn't had one for a long time, so I just thought it'd be fun. But but if we do this, then Joe can't drink on Friday, so that's not going to work out. Joe can't. can't I couldn't drink today.
4: I couldn't today anyway because I've got to I've got to go driving after this. Uh, so, oh. yeah. All right. Yeah.
0: All right. All right. So we can arrange that. Yeah. We we'll, we'll just get the bus. Get the legal tech week bus.
4: The party bus. Yeah. Built ideas. There we go. To, all
0: right. Double A double L. All before right. that, I know Gene will be there. I know oh. I will be there.
4: I'll be there
0: and Cleo Yeah, and Cleo
4: Oh, wait—that that, that, that's a be ways a, off yeah. still. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh,
0: all, right. all right. Well, that's good because gas prices are high. It'll take us a while to get get all the way all out right. to uh, where <laughs> is Cleo Nashville, not to Nashville,
4: Nashville. Yeah. All right.
0: All right. Well, good. We'll see everybody next week. And uh, thanks for putting up with my uh, remote uh, moderating. No, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a see
4: lot. It.
0: Yeah,